sometimes, and I think that this is something that the news media struggles with, is that people don't trust them, even though very often the mainstream media isn't out to mislead people and isn't out to push an agenda. I think most working reporters are out to report the truth. The company is evolving and understands that it's not the past anymore. We ultimately want to build tools that developers can use regardless of what platform you're on. Welcome to the Hacker Noon Podcast. I'm your host, Trent Lipinski. In this episode, I interviewed Christina Warren. She's formerly of Mashable and Gizmodo and is now working for Microsoft. In this episode, we cover everything from fake news to the journalism apocalypse to what's happening with Apple and Microsoft and what's happening in the tech industry in general. So this is a great episode. If you're interested in journalism and learning from one of the industry's best, Christina's amazing, so please stay tuned. Greetings, Hacker. Ever wonder how to submit stories to Hacker Noon or check the status of your submissions? Well, wonder no more. Go to contribute.hackernoon.com. Whether you're a new writer, longtime contributor, or looking for the right place to spotlight your brand, get started with contribute.hackernoon.com. With your help, we are building Hacker Noon 2.0 to be the best place for tech professionals to publish, and it starts with a new submission flow. Head over to contribute.hackernoon.com today to claim your spot. You are Hacker Noon. Welcome to the podcast. I'm here with Christina Warren. She's formerly of Mashable and Gizmodo and is now working at Microsoft uh, in the cloud division. So, hey, Christina, tell us a bit about who you are and what you're working on. Yeah. So, um, like you said, I, I used to be a, a technology and business journalist, uh, and now I work in developer relations at Microsoft as a senior cloud advocate. And with that, um, I basically um, interact a lot with our product groups where I kind of try to get feedback from our users about what things um, are good, what things might need to be improved, um, you know, get uh, insights into how people are using things and try to, to make our stuff better. Um, I also do a lot of our video content and kind of think a lot about what types of content we're making for, for YouTube and um, other platforms. Um, but, uh, which is interesting, right? Because I used to be a mm-hmm. journalist and, and a, a, a big part of my, I still kind of am in, in the sense that I, I do podcasts and um, I, I definitely still consider myself like a storyteller and kind of a, a, you know, a journalist at heart. But I used to have to break down complicated technical uh, topics for mainstream audiences. And now it's similar, but it's you know, a, a technical a developer-centric audience that you're trying to maybe explain or, or um, surface what what's happening and then sometimes speaking with, you know, product teams and, and distilling back, you know, the sort of feedback that we're getting and things that we're seeing so that they can focus on making stuff even better. Yeah. And I'd really love to get your take on, you know, what's happening with journalism today. Yeah. Um, Cause I've been following you for probably like 10 plus years now and we've had like kind of like both parallel and opposite career paths because when I was into journalism, you like, I think you weren't quite on the scene yet. Then when I was leaving journalism, you came onto the scene and started writing for Mashable. And that was when I had just sold, you know, one of my like journalism sites and stopped writing uh, and like started working for MySpace founder startups and, you know, whatever. Um, And, you know, you've, you then had a very, very successful career as a journalist uh, and you've written for some of the largest, you know, tech news websites uh, what are your thoughts on kind of where journalism at, is at in 2019 and the kind of recent journalism apocalypse we're seeing? Yeah, no, so it 
it sucks, right? Like there's, there's another way to say it. Um, it was interesting when I got into to media, um, I made a conscientious decision to focus on digital media and not print. So not newspapers or magazines, because when I started first kind of writing, um, 2009 was, I guess when was when I started working at Mashable, but I was doing some stuff earlier than that. I made the conscientious decision to focus on blogs and digital because a, I've always been like a digital native. I've always loved the web. Um, even when I was you know, in middle school and high school, I was building websites. I was writing about things. I, I've always loved that side of it. Um, but I, I, I thought that I was like, this is just the direction media is going to go in, right? Like, you know, people don't you know, buy newspapers the same way. Magazines aren't, um, you know, selling the way that they used to. Everybody is accessing things online. So why should I be trying to write you know, in print when that's going away. So I focused on on digital and I was uh, very lucky in that I kind of got in um, early before kind of the big boom, I guess, really mm. started. So you already had blogs and you already had people who were doing well, but I got in like right around the time that people started to maybe take it seriously and it became, you know, a, a real business and a real industry. And so for the last 15 years, I would say, you know, the media industry definitely been seeing a lot of growing pains and, and has had tons of layoffs. But again, most of them have been focused on print where, you know, you see, you know, print circulation is down and magazines are getting shut down and things are going online only. But you had this boom, I think, especially from probably like, you know, 2010 through, you know, recently the last decade or so where digital, with the rise of things like BuzzFeed and Vice and, um, you know, even websites, you know, like Mashable. Um, people kind of said this is going to be the future model and, and advertising is going to support this and there's going to be you know these social models that will pay for these things um, and, and video is going to be a big component and, and this is the future of, of media. This is the future of journalism. And then what you started seeing happening around 2016, uh, but, but most recently getting really bad, is that you started to see the first wave of layoffs in digital media. And that we hadn't seen before, right? Like you might've seen it at legacy companies that had both digital and print sides and maybe the digital side would get cuts too. So, you know, your Condé Nast, your Hearst, um, maybe, uh, you know, some of your, your, your New York Times stuff, but you hadn't seen this impact the digital first um, companies, especially those that had received, you know, venture funding. And that again, had kind of been hailed as like these future news things. And then starting in 2016, um, that started to change. And in the last just couple of months, it's gotten even worse. So I left working in media full-time. I still do podcasts and, and I still you know, write occasionally in May of 2017. And between like the end of May when I left and I think the end of 2017, I don't even know how many um, digital uh, layoffs there were there were a lot and that's lot. only and, and that's only continued to grow right like probably it's at least in the tens of thousands of journalists have lost their jobs in the last probably two to three years yeah I, I definitely and, and it, yeah and, and it definitely has impacted you know print people too that still is definitely being hit but I think that what's happened and what's had to make people reassess things is that it's not just that so in the last couple of months since the beginning of this year, we've seen, you know, Vice announced that they're going to be doing some restructuring and layoffs, and people don't know what that means. Um, BuzzFeed laying off a, a, a large number of staffers. Um, Huffington Post and um, the various uh, AOL, Yahoo properties, uh, what are they called? It was Oath, but now they've, they've changed it to, to something else. I think maybe Yahoo Media or something doing layoffs. Um, other digital sites doing things. Condé Nast, which obviously is still a print thing, but they've shifted into one newsroom having layoffs. Um, BuzzFeed and Vice are, uh, Mike 
shutting down and in selling for nothing when they had um, a couple of floors in one world trade and and had raised a bunch of money in venture. Uh, Mashable at the end of 2017 sold um, for uh, like $50 million, but that was not a, a good exit. That was considered basically like that's they basically sold for what they raised and that was seen as, as a failure. Um, uh, kind of a fire sale. And yeah, yeah, totally, totally. Um, you know, the obviously the lawsuits and, and, and things that are not directly related to a lot of this, but you know, uh, the 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 demise of, of Gawker Media, um, which then became Gizmodo. which is coming back now. Gawker actually is the property yeah, the, the domains property. got resold. Yes, ironically, yeah. to the guy who bought Mike dot uh, com, uh, Brian yeah. Goldberg, who uh, originally created Bleacher Report. But you know, but anyway, you you, you started to see you know these um, things that have been heralded as like the future of media now faltering and and the two biggest ones being you know vice and buzzfeed because they had uh been you know super high valued i, I guess the third one and that would be vox and they've had some layoffs but they've for the most part uh been okay and um and it's scary right because we all thought this digital advertising model and these other things are going to make up the slack it's going to be able to make these uh, endeavors profitable and worthwhile. And you finally started to convince people, especially I think in the case of something like BuzzFeed, that even though, you know, they might get a lot of their traffic from listicles and, and you know, cat videos and memes, there is some really good journalism and some really good reporting mm -hmm. happening. People are finally starting to, to turn the corner and not roll their eyes that just because it's a digital only thing, you're like, oh, it can be good. And then it's almost like as soon as that happens, um, the bottom falls out. Uh, uh, some of it is because of business decisions that companies made, I think, by relying too heavily on partnerships with companies like Facebook um, and, and relying on them to maybe bring them traffic and, and becoming too reliant or making business decisions that, you know, these platforms would not ultimately support. Some of it is I'll just- pause you there, actually, yeah. because I think Facebook actually has played a major role in this because they changed their algorithm. Completely. After the 2016 election and after the Cambridge mm -hmm. Analytica scandal, they completely shifted their algorithm. I don't know if listeners know this, but um, you know, I'm just gonna restate it quickly. So basically Facebook changed their algorithm so that instead of being able to share content, uh, they put an emphasis on being able to share personally within your network. So yes. they put an emphasis on text only or photo only. Or photos, they, they, yes, exactly. They, they put it stop promoting of, your news. Completely, and that was a huge, huge thing. That started in 2016, um, you know, like you said, around the time of the the election, um, and but even before then, you know, it, it started to hit. They they started to I think it was like early mid twenty sixteen is when it really started. And at this point, that was kind of a bait and switch because you'd had a lot of these media companies who built their businesses. I think Mike is actually a really good example where they built their businesses and their scale and the amount of money they were trying to sell ads for and things like that on the back of Facebook because Facebook said, we're going to be your platform. And then Facebook changes the rules. And when that happens and your traffic goes away, um, that's really hard. And, um, you know, you know, to keep your audience and, and to continue to, to pull in the sorts of, you know, revenues that you were pulling in, I would say even worse than the algorithm change, I think was their about face with, um, uh, Facebook live, which was their, their video platform. So what a lot of people don't know is that when Facebook live launched, and I guess it was, it was like 2015, 2016, um, they paid news outlets, um, to create content for them. And 
to get the money, you had to commit to a certain amount of, of content. And that was going to be different per publication. Like, and the amount of money that they were paying, you know, varied to obviously bigger things are going to get bigger amounts of money, but you had a quota. And so to make these videos and fill this quota, you have to now hire video journalists. You have to hire editors. You have to hire people who are going to be able to create this content. And sometimes it can be reused, but a lot of times it can't. And so a lot of news organizations believing that this was going to be a sustaining revenue stream make these hires, make these pivots. Um, and then what happens is that uh, a year later, Facebook, when the contract renewals come up, they say, yeah, you know what? Um, we don't really want to do this anymore. And so in 2017, they basically cut a lot of the partnerships completely. Um, some of them continued, some of them, they were able to sell into Facebook watch series, but, but very few and far between. And so if you'd done this quote unquote pivot to video, which is what a lot of media companies were doing in 2016, um, believing that it was going to pay off, Facebook again pulled the rug out after you know people had made business decisions. Now some of this you can you have to you know put some culpability on, on the on the publications because especially when you know Facebook has a history of, of changing terms, it was like, okay, why are you continuing to to kind of give into this and and why are you building your business on this? So the the publications have some culpability, but it also, you know, at a certain point, um, you can understand why if somebody's coming to your door and is saying, we're going to give you $500,000 or we're going to give you a million dollars if you create this content that you think that might be a sustainable thing, um, especially, and, and then it's just, it's up to their whims. And so, you know, I'd like to add the numbers were also there was a there was an article that came out that stated that the numbers that they were showing that Facebook yes. was presenting were fake. Yes, that's uh, exactly right. So it's, it was even worse. It's like not only are they backing off of the video processes, but the numbers they've been telling you that you're getting for views that you're then giving to advertisers that you're then holding up as your metrics have been inflated. Uh, and and maybe you haven't pursued other formats or other platforms because you know, Facebook has become this big driver. And so what you started to see was the publications that were very largely dependent on Facebook for reach and for, uh, you know, uh, direct traffic um, uh, and SEO and that sort of thing, um, and, and maybe even advertising, um, losing uh, a lot of their visibility and, and a lot of their, their, their revenue. I mean, and that's one of the things that happened to Mike. And, and the, the problem is, is, you know, journalism, even if it's digital is expensive. Most of these companies are based in expensive cities. You know, uh, you have offices, um, you know, you, uh, there, it, it costs money to do this. And so if you're not bringing enough in, if you're not fully profitable, um, then it gets harder to raise money. If the, you know, tools you've been relying on, um, at the, the people who you think are partners for growth are, you know, changing the rules, then how do you convince somebody else to give you more money to continue doing something? And I mean, look, and in, in, in even if you're profitable, even if you're being successful, I mean, BuzzFeed's a great example where they're doing well. Like if you actually look at their numbers, their revenue, they came in under projections, but they're still doing really well. But that's not good enough because I mean, this is, and this I think can be applied to startups. This is really good. It's not just, it's not unique to the news business. Uh, this, this is a reality of, of venture-backed um, businesses is that um, even though they're doing well and even though they're profitable and even though they're making money, it's not enough and it's it's not enough for the investors. And so they have to make cuts and start doing other things to streamline things and, and uh, be more um, efficient. And that 
ends up meaning that people lose their jobs. Um, and and Twitter but, fell into that boat. I, I'd argue yeah. Reddit also went through that phase. Totally. Um, a lot of these, a lot of tech companies go through that. Uh, and now we're seeing it happening to the media companies as well. Totally, totally. And, and the, you know, and that's an interesting, I guess, kind of distinction between the digital first places and kind of maybe the, the legacy things. Now, to be clear, legacy companies, especially if they're, um, you know, uh, publicly, publicly traded, have a lot of, uh, you know, financial impact and investors can weigh those decisions too. But historically until, you know, I'd say like the, the, the late nineties, um, early two thousands, when you really had a lot of consolidation in print, a lot of these were family owned businesses. And sometimes they were, I'm not going to say vanity projects, but the, the goal wasn't per se to like make as much money as possible. Mm -hmm. And, um, that's obviously changed in both print and digital, but you didn't have the kind of like, you know, a, 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 a venture model like you do with, with digital news where the people who are investing are the same people who would invest in Reddit or in Twitter or in Facebook. Um, and so, you know, it, it, it puts a different spin on things because people expect those type of returns sometimes. And the media business is just different uh, than, you know, creating an app or, or a startup or a, a social network. Yep. And I want to get your opinion on fake news and, you know, that whole thing that we kind of, that's been coming about lately. I mean, obviously that term, I mean, to me, that term means propaganda um, yep. in one sense, you know, in one form of it. In another sense, it also means misinformation. Um, I'd love to kind of get your perspective on what fake news means to you and how much you think this might have been a factor in what's kind of been going on lately. So I think that it's a couple of things, like you said, I think that it can be shorthand for propaganda. And um, I think that sometimes people use it just to describe things that they think are biased in one, in one way or another. So it's not actually fake. They just might not like what the, what the, what the slant is. But then you also have cases where you literally have false information or untrue mm -hmm. things um, that, that are, are being, uh, that, are, that are out there and that are spreading wildly. And in that case, you know, you look at things like Facebook and Twitter, but especially Facebook have really been drivers of this. Uh, you know, you look at, at uh, you know, some of the things that happening, you know, in, in Myanmar where Facebook has been, you know, basically by the UN, like implicated for having a role in genocide because of false information being spread by the government, uh, which is terrible. You have, you know, fake things happening in WhatsApp groups in India that lead to people um, being killed and mobs forming. Um, you have... Uh, you know, fringe groups on, on uh, either side of the political spectrum being able to kind of, you know, uh, uh, incite uh, violence or, or um, anger, um, you know, using these, these platforms. And in some cases, you know, I think the, the kind of the original kind of exploration of fake news, not maybe the buzzword that, that President Trump has said, but, but the actual, you know, real fake stuff were things that were just designed to kind of uh, exploit Facebook and to get clicks and to get money. And you've had, you know, there were a lot of stories uh, about how those types of farms and operations worked. And I, I definitely don't want to discount, I think, the, the impact that those things could have. Uh, but I feel like, um, and, and, and the, the sad thing is, is that when a lot of the studies were coming up and looking at some of the most engaged, you know, pages and whatnot, um, they, could, they could have a real impact. The mm -hmm. interesting thing there, I think, is that many of the people behind those types of sites didn't really, it, it, you could call it propaganda, but at the same time, it's kind of not because the people behind it didn't really care about the ideology. They just wanted to make money 
you know, they didn't really care, you yeah. know, what, whether who, who was, uh, you know, uh, they just wanted to go after what they felt was the more gullible audience and the audience that's more likely to be enraged and click. It's not about trying to push a certain ideology, uh, which is, which is different, I think, than in, in some cases where people, you know, like I said, use the term to be more about propaganda or to spread a certain message or, or, um, you know, um, uh, I guess, um, hold down a certain message. Mm-hmm. At this point, I almost, you know, I think it's a real problem, but I also feel like in some ways it's been exacerbated uh, and, and the term has kind of lost some of its meaning. But I think the issue is, is that what, what you know, news publications, regardless of, of their ideology, regardless of their digital print or whatever, run into, whether they're online or, you know, television news or YouTube or whatever, run into is that what this, this term has kind of brought up, I think, is that there's a huge amount of distrust uh, overall in the public with, with media. Um, and, and that might be founded. Some of it might be founded. Some of it might not be. Some of it might be, you know, exacerbated by uh, other uh, factors. Um, but what that ends up doing is is kind of creating this, um, I think, even more partisan, um, I guess, just kind of uh, narrative, like, I, you know, mm-hmm. around, around uh, or not narrative, but I guess there's more partisan culture, you know, a society becomes- Plays into divide and conquer. Completely. And it's kind of a propaganda thing as well. Totally. And, and I think people, you know, tr- don't trust what they're reading. They don't trust what they're hearing. They're always looking for uh, other um, options and, and um, maybe things that are going to reinforce their own views. Um, and sometimes, and I think that this is something that the, the news media struggles with, is that people don't trust them, even though in very, you know, very often the, the mainstream media isn't out to, in my opinion, isn't out to mislead people and isn't out to push an agenda. You know, I, I think most people, most working reporters are out to report the, the truth. Everybody, it, regardless of, of what they want to admit or not, everyone has an opinion and has bias. But I think plenty of people who are doing reporting aren't trying to get a certain ideology across, aren't trying to push a certain you know, set of, uh, of facts out. And what happens is that you know, the smallest you know, um, reporting error becomes blown up and people discount the entire thing. You know? mm-hmm. or, or people will, will not believe um, what, they're, what they're reading because of this perception that that fake news is rampant and that nothing can be trusted, and and that's really damaging, I think, for uh, for the news business um, because it, the media does have an important role, you know, to uh, to tell stories and to um, uncover um, uh, injustices and to hold people accountable. And when you don't have a, a free press or a press that's able to, you know, kind of operate, whether it's because of financial uh, uh, concerns or it's because of uh, platforms. Um, that are, you know, um, you know, changing their whims on distribution or because, you know, readers um, are only going to want to uh, consume content that adheres to their own opinions. Um, that's, that's, I don't think that's good for society. Greetings, Hacker. Ever wonder how to submit stories to Hacker Noon or check the status of your submissions? Well, wonder no more. Go to contribute.hackernoon.com. Whether you're a new writer, longtime contributor, or looking for the right place to spotlight your brand, get started with contribute.hackernoon.com. With your help, we are building Hacker Noon 2.0 to be the best place for tech professionals to publish, and it starts with a new submission flow. Head over to contribute.hackernoon.com today to claim your spot. You are Hacker Noon. So this brings me to my next question is, uh, what are your thoughts on censorship and what is happening online with deplatforming? I, I mean, there's been 
a number of high profile individuals who have been banned from social media, uh, some people that arguably are journalists, some people that are arguably activists, uh, some people that are arguably, you know, conspiracy theorists. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you have people like Mike Saronovich, you know, a lawyer, documentary filmmaker, um, you know, he's been deranked on Facebook. So his, you know, if he goes live, he can't reach his audience. He tweets things regularly that don't reach his audience. Um, so he's just kind of been throttled down. Then you have people like Laura Loomer who have just been basically deleted from social media. And then you've got like Alex Jones, um, you know, that's just, I mean, he can't even have a bank account. Um, he's had five or six bank accounts. He was on Joe Rogan recently and talked about all of this. He's down to a single bank account. Um, and he's been labeled a terrorist uh, by like different world governments because of, uh, you know, him being deplatformed from these social media sites. I'd love to get your thoughts and your perspective on censorship and all the stuff that's happening on social media and then how that also kind of ties in and threatens journalism. Yeah, so it's interesting, right? Like, I want to be kind of uh, careful here because I, although I am, I'm kind of in many ways, I am kind of a, a free speech absolutist. Um, and I'm definitely, uh, look, and I, I just for, disclosure, I don't agree politically with any of the individuals that you discussed. That being said, I'm also not in all cases super comfortable with the idea that they don't have, um, uh, you know, the ability to express themselves on social media. That said, I mean, I do feel like it's, it's important to note that, you know, platforms like Facebook and, and, and Twitter are private companies. And I'm okay with us acknowledging, it, as long as it's acknowledged that they have the rights to pick and choose who can be on their platforms and what content is and is not appropriate. Um, if people are, if people ultimately disagree with that and find those, those constraints to be too much, I mean, I, then, then that's, that's fine too. But I'm, I'm, I don't feel like I'm not at the point where even though it, in many ways, these social platforms have become the place that a lot of people get their news and get their information and have become kind of a public square. It's still not. Um, I, I think that when you look at issues like, you know, whether, Companies will, you know, host DNS servers for for certain content, or you know, allow, uh, you know, bank accounts and things like that. That becomes a little bit more, for for me, a little bit uh, trickier. But I don't feel like any person is required uh, should be, you know, uh, they're not owed a Twitter account. They're not owed. A, Here's a another example, perhaps. Uh, how about Julian Assange? What's your perspective on him and WikiLeaks? Because in my opinion, he's a journalist. Um, I don't know. I think that, that I think he could have been, um, you know, with, with some of the, the, the Chelsea Manning stuff. Um, I think that there's substantial evidence that he might have, um, he might no longer be acting as a journalist. And I think that, that, uh, you know, if you're, if you're accessing information and, and aiding and getting that information to foreign governments or other things, I personally have a problem with that. Um, but at the same time, you know, if, if someone's providing him information, I don't know. I think he's, he's a hard case. Uh, I, I think that he, WikiLeaks has had um, instances where I would consider what they've done, you know, journalistic. And I, and I think that now, for me anyway, it's, it's harder for me to make that distinction. Um, but but I, I haven't looked into some of the most recent things recently enough. Um, but I mean, my, that's in my thing, it really is what they've done to him as a consequence of it. So whether or not, you know, you agree or disagree that he's a journalist, it's like, 
the fact that he's basically being held in solitary confinement. And well, I mean, that's, that's different. I mean, that's partially that's because crazy. I mean, well, that's, but that's his own choice to choose to be in, in that, um, uh, yes no, if he, I mean, embassy, well, I mean, well, the embassy, he's pretty much, yeah, not- you're, you're not wrong, but I mean, but those, but those, the crimes that he's been accused of in those instances, I think, I mean, look, could you say that, that it's been exacerbated and people are taking it more seriously because of the information that he revealed, um, you know, uh, around the Chelsea Manning stuff, probably, and some of the other things, some of the anonymous stuff, probably, but you know, the, the fact remains that, like, I, I personally don't see someone like Edward Snowden and someone like Julian Assange the same way, personally. But I can, uh, but I can understand the line of thought that people, that people see them um, similarly and, and uh, you know, um, uh, see, see them, you know, their uh, plights as, as similar. I, I can respect that. I guess, but getting back to your, your, your earlier point about deplatforming, I mean, it's hard because abuse and harassment is a real thing happening mm-hmm. on on social media and and people experience this and i see it happen to people all the time and these companies are not doing a good enough job in my opinion of addressing that but at the same time like you have to balance that with well you know how far do you go and um uh, what is what is your uh is your role in this i think that the hard thing has been that historically these companies have taken a hands-off approach and then it switched and I think that's been the issue. I think that if, if these companies had been more consistent earlier on about what role they were going to take in, um, you know, having content guidelines, then it would be different. Yeah, exactly. Having more transparency, then it would be better. I also think that in some cases, people are not necessarily like people talk about being shadow banned and things like that. And, and, and you see that on, on both sides of, of the ideology spectrum, people making those claims. And a lot of those cases, I think there's just algorithms are not great. Yeah. And that people because you know these things are proprietary people's minds go into uh directions that might not be accurate um i I, i'm a big believer in occam's razor in this case which is more than like in a lot of these cases i think it's just you know the way the code is done it's kind of a black box and it's not an intentional thing um code is bias i mean the programmer who writes those algorithms or trains that machine learning bot has a personal bias that potentially is going into the code conceivably, but you could also make the cases because I've had I've people who are like democratic operatives who've been very bothered by saying, oh, my, my tweets aren't being seen by people and whatnot. And, and mm-hmm. there have been instances where, and that might be true, but part of that is that they have, and we don't know what this is, but there might be signals that say, if you've had a suspension before, if you've had number of reports before that we've taken action on or whatever, if we've had made you delete things, then that can impact the algorithm and, and, and the reach and how often things might show up and suggest it. I don't think that it's, I'm personally not of the opinion that you have people who are working on these products who are making decisions to say, I don't like this content. So I'm purposely targeting this group of people. I think that that personally is going too far down like a, a, a rabbit hole of intent where I think most of the engineers aren't thinking about that. They're, you know, thinking about how do we, you know, um, uh, deal with maybe ma- mass harassment and, and, what signals are we looking for to, to reduce certain things? Um, and, and some of that, because of reporting and other things, might impact some people more than others. But, but do go back to what I was saying earlier. I don't think that you, know, you, are, that you uh, have like a, an innate right to a Twitter account mm-hmm. or a Facebook account. Um, that's not to say that not having one isn't a problem, but I don't think you have an innate right to that. Uh, I also think that, you know, it's it's difficult for me, as as I said, I tend to be more of a free speech absolutist. 
And so sometimes I look at these things and you have to kind of draw the line, okay, well, where does it go from being um, speech and where does it go into being, you know, potentially inciting, you know, uh, violence or, or, or rhetoric that can really harm people. Um, and I think there are lines, you know, I think that if, you, if you're, if you're doxing people where, and by that, or if you're swatting people um, and, uh, you know, you're um, actively trying to to harm um, individuals or, or uh, compel others to harm them, I personally don't think that falls into free speech anymore. I think that goes into something else. And not to say that the individuals who have, you know, been deplatformed have done those things, but just to say, I do think that they're just because you, uh, for me personally, just because I believe in free speech doesn't mean that I think that you should be able to you know, say or do anything or make threats against people because there is, there is still a line. You can say, I, I don't like you and this is bad, but not I'm, I'm going to, to kill you and, or, you know, um, uh, you know, make active threats or say, this is your address and I'm coming after you and this is your social security number. And these are other things. Um, so, and, and, but I also, like I said, I mean, it's hard for me because ultimately, I mean, these platforms do have the right to pick and choose what content they want. Um, what I think it's harder is if you do have platforms that have different standards and then their underlying infrastructure, you know, doesn't want to host them and whatnot. I have a much harder time with that. Again, I still feel like if a company wants to say, we don't want you on our servers, that's fine. And they have every right to do that. Um, but there might be certain, but you know, um, there, but there are certain things, you know, that I don't know. I, for me, it's complicated. I, I struggle with, I I struggle with that a lot. When, if I violate the rules on Twitter, I get banned from Facebook. Or right. if I violate the rules on Patreon, I get my business bank account deleted. Right. Yeah. I mean, I agree with that. I agree with that. Or, That's or, crazy to me. Or, or to go, you know, the Julian Assange stuff, I was very bothered and continue to be bothered that when, you know, WikiLeaks is, you know, PayPal and things like that were shut down and the credit card mm -hmm. processors were removing their ability to do things. Not to say that they, again, I mean, if MasterCard doesn't want to do business with you, they don't have to, but you know, your, your Patreon being shut down. I agree with you. I don't like that that could impact your bank account. I don't like how some of these, um, digital tools can act, I guess, um, like real banks, you know, PayPal being a good example. They're not a bank. They have a lot of, uh, you don't have the same, uh, protections as you would with a bank, but yet they have a lot of the, um, impunity to act. This point, the they're pretty close to a bank. I mean, you can get, you know, if, insured accounts you can get you loans. can but they're not but what but, but they're but they're not a bank what i'm saying is yeah. they get all the advantages of being a bank without, without being a bank. right and so which i think is a problem right and and i think that's actually a, a problem beyond any sort of political things like i think that you see a lot of people who if they sell things online and they have you know scammers or fraudsters doing chargebacks mm -hmm. or doing other things where their money can be kept in in escrow like uh, unilaterally, um, it's not a good situation. It's one of those things where it's like, if you have a lot of money in PayPal, you should be moving that out into actual bank accounts yep. as soon as possible. Um, that's, that I, is like, for me, that is actually completely separate from any sort of speech issues. Um, but, but I do feel like we do kind of go into this area where you have a lot of disruptive technologies that take on the same role as, you know, very regulated industries, but then don't mm -hmm. have the same responsibilities or, or legal um, responsibilities as those regulated industries because they're not part of it. And, and that's, that's disturbing for me. Yeah, I agree. Um, I'd like to shift the conversation a little bit and talk about a little bit about what you're working on now because yeah. you know, we've kind of covered the medium you know, and media spectrum. 
Um, but you know, you've, you've left journalism. You're now at Microsoft. You're now focusing on, uh, you know, on cloud. Can you talk a little bit about what you're working on now and kind of why you made that decision to, uh, get out of the journalism space? Yeah. Well, I mean, kind of as we talked about, you know, between when I left and, and now, you know, it's been almost two years, there's been like the industry is not good. Um, it, it's not in a great place. A lot of my friends have lost their jobs or are really worried about their jobs. And that's really disappointing and depressing. Um, I've always been kind of, and you're like this too, right? Where I've always kind of been tied between kind of two worlds. I, I love media, but I also love technology. And so what I'm doing now, um, in a lot of ways, I kind of get to do both. Um, I still you know, do my own podcasts and I still get to, to go on other people's podcasts. Um, but I'm helping, you know, tell stories and, um, talk to people and hopefully have product impact on, on tools that people use. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, so as, as a, as a cloud advocate, I mean, that's a lot of what I do is I work with product teams to really try to get feedback from, um, our users, um, you know, to, to make Azure, um, as good as it can be, you know, and, um, and, and taking the, the, the good and the bad. So if somebody's saying, I can't use this because of this blocker, I want to be able to take that feedback to the product groups and let them know, Hey, this is, this is what's happening. And, or if there might be a technical reason why something doesn't work the way someone wants, I want to be able to explain to them, okay, we, we hear you, but this is a much, you know, this, this is a broader, uh, problem, um, to think about. And so, um, I've been, uh, we have a YouTube channel, uh, uh, Microsoft Developer, where there's a lot of developer content that's created um, every week, and I help um, do a lot of the kind of the strategy on that. I host some of those videos. I also, at conferences, will give talks and um, do interviews, kind of like what you're doing with other developers, talk about, you know, the latest new things and how they work. Um, I, uh, it's a lot of fun. So for me, you know, I've always kind of lived in these two worlds where I really like uh, software and I really like, you know, the web and, and building things, but I also really like to write. Mm -hmm. And um, before I became a journalist, I was doing a lot of, you know, uh, web dev stuff and, and still kind of dabbled with that. And now I'm just kind of back on that part of my brain, but still, you know, writing and, and, and telling stories and doing videos uh, just, you know, from a different perspective. And for some context for the listeners, Microsoft's cloud division is doing really well. Um, they just had incredible earnings recently. Uh, you know, they acquired GitHub. Mm -hmm. Microsoft is today is a completely different company than they were even probably five years ago. Um, you know, they've doubled down on open source initiatives. Um, they've kind of shifted a lot of the ideology of kind of the, the uh, you know, kind of proprietary and closed, uh, you know, way that things used to happen under kind of the Balmer and Gates days. Uh, those days are pretty much over at Microsoft and it's kind of a new day there. Can you talk a little bit about yeah. that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, since Satya Nadella took over, I think everybody is kind of, uh, there's been, I was not the company obviously before he joined, but there's been, um, it's been different and, and there's, uh, there's, there's kind of a, a, a new vibe. Um, many of the people that I work with, some of them are, a lot of the people on my team are brand new to the company. A lot of us have open source backgrounds and never would have thought that we would work at Microsoft. Um, you know, I'm, I use a Mac, a, a Microsoft mm -hmm. issued Mac, you know, um, but uh, at least from my perspective and what I've been able to observe, you know, one of the reasons that I even originally kind of took the call and was interested in, in doing the interview process and going to work at Microsoft was because I'd already noticed as a user that things had changed. And then I was convinced of that when I was in the interview and I've become more convinced of that um, now that I'm um, at the company. And um, 
I think that's really exciting. You know, it's, it's cool to see, you know, um, like the reaction to, to the GitHub uh, acquisition was interesting because obviously there was, there were a lot of people who were understandably nervous about this, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I completely understand that I'm a huge GitHub fan. I've been, you know, a, a user uh, since like 2009 and, and I understand the caution, um, but it wasn't what I think it would have been even three years ago where there was a lot more, I think because of, of, of things like Visual Studio Code and, um, you know, uh, WSL, you know, the Windows subsystem on Linux and more of the commitment to open source, there was uh, more of a kind of like, there's still a hesitancy, but a lot of people in the community were more like, okay, this, this makes sense and this might be, this might not be bad. Um, you know, seeing what happened with the, the, the Xamarin acquisition and some of the other acquisitions that have happened to see that, hey, you know, these, these teams have still been able to do what they want to do um, has been, you know, ho- um, helpful and hopeful. And, and I mean, I think that's all we can kind of do is, is to kind of show that, you know, um, the company is evolving and, and understands that it's, mm-hmm. it's not the past anymore. I would say the biggest challenge, I mean, one of the things, the challenges that we have as advocates and, and, you know, you have to kind of acknowledge, like, some of the people you're talking to have had bad experiences. And, you know, yes, uh, Steve Ballmer said that Linux is a cancer, you know, in like 2001. But also, I kind of want to say, but it was 2001. You know, yeah. like, it's not, it's not 1997 anymore. <laughs> um, and, and so, and like, I, I, most of my friends are iOS and, and macOS developers. And, you know, and I've been, I was a, an Apple beat reporter for a long time. And so it was really funny for people. They're like, oh, but you're, an Apple person at Microsoft. I'm like, well, yeah, because it's not 1997 anymore, you know? Um, And uh, we ultimately want to build tools that, you know, developers can use regardless of what platform you're on. If you use Uh Windows, that's great. If you use Linux, that's great. If you use Mac, that's great, whatever. Uh, We want to have, you know, our cloud, we want it to be the best for everybody. Um, And that wasn't always the... Uh, strategy and and but that is now and and now we kind of have to prove ourselves and be like hey this is how you know we're talking the talk now we have to, to prove ourselves and walk the walk you know you, you can say all the right things you can hire all the right people but we have to continue to to prove it to the users and that's what we're trying to do and that's why you know me and the people on uh, that I work with genuinely want to get the feedback and we genuinely want to make, you know, those connections and, and, uh, uh, be able to impact product the right way. Um, cause I don't want to just tell people, Oh, everything's awesome. I want to be able to actually help make things, you know, as good as possible, um, and continue to evolve and, and continue to get back. And I mean, even this week, it was really awesome. I think actually, uh, the windows calculator went open source mm-hmm. and it's a, it's a UWP app, but, um, you know, if somebody wanted to write a different wrapper for it, even though it would be harder to do, you could do it, but it's, it's written in C++. And so really you've got this great, like very good calculator kind of logic that's now open source. They have a roadmap. Um, it went open source yesterday as we're recording this. And already I was looking through the, the pull requests and the um, issues on GitHub and was really impressed with how the people on that team are responding and engaging and also, you know, kind of lolling at some of the um, uh, you know, suggestions, but it's really cool to see because like, this is, this is an app that, you know, it's a calculator and it seems small, but it's a, a good example of how to build something and B, you know, when you have that kind of logic, like you can build that into, into other applications. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, I think that's, that's like not something that would have happened five years ago. Um, yeah. and, and so I, I like seeing things like that happen. I like seeing, 
um, you know, the company surprises me a lot and that makes me happy, uh, to work here and, and to do what I do and to be able to, you know, tell people, Hey, you know, um, we're listening and, and feel like that's actually true. Cause if that weren't true, I wouldn't be here. Like full mm-hmm. stop. Like I, I'm not, I'm not going to work someplace if, if I feel like I can't support what they're doing. And that doesn't mean that, that, um, you know, uh, there are things that we can improve on and, and we're actively working to do that, but we're, we're trying, you know, and, and, uh, like you said, yeah, I mean, and, and cloud is a competitive space. There are a lot of options for a lot of different people. And, um, there are some really good things that other people are doing that I think is awesome. And I try to keep up with that. Um, but we're just trying to, to make things as good as they can be, um, for all developers, regardless of what platform they're on or, um, you know, what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And you covered, as you mentioned, you covered Apple and you were basically an Apple beat reporter for yeah. quite a while. What are your thoughts on Apple today versus, you know, kind of, you know, you, you were basically covering, you know, the Steve Jobs era, the end of it, mm-hmm. coming up into the transition into the Tim Cook era. And then, you know, now you've kind of left journalism. So I'd be really curious to kind of get your uh, your thoughts over the last couple of years on, you know, where Apple's kind of gone and what they've been up to. Yeah, no, I mean, so, I mean, I'm still a, a big Apple user, big Apple fan. I always buy the latest iPhone and iPad and stuff. Uh, I think AirPods are one of the greatest uh, products to come out um, in, in years. Um, the Apple watch I think is morphed into a really good product. Apple's an interesting company. It's hard because, you know, for a lot of Apple fans, I think especially, you know, the company has changed. And this happened under Steve Jobs, but it's really happened under Tim Cook And that, you know, I think for a lot of us, like when you were doing Apple News and Rumors and stuff, they were the underdog. So, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of Mac fans and Apple fans are, I think, by default, overly defensive. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, people do like to treat their computing platforms, whether it's, you know, Android or iOS or Mac or Windows or, or Linux or whatever, uh, or Chrome or whatever, um, as sports teams. And, you know, Apple is, is the Patriots. And so, you know, I mean, like they're, they're the biggest, they're the, they're, 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 you know, the, the most profitable. Um, and, uh, that puts, uh, I think sometimes that means they get criticized more than they should. And I think sometimes, you know, it means that some of the the fans need to sometimes be, uh, like less defensive and it's like, okay, mm-hmm. you know, chill. Cause it, they're fine. You know, I think that some of the, the business, uh, critiques are are misguided in the sense that oh Apple is doomed. It's like they're not doomed. Like they're you know yeah. the most profitable company in the world. It, it's it's they're sitting fine. on a pile of cash. Completely, they're they're completely fine. Um, they just stop selling products tomorrow and operate for another like ten years without if if lot. not longer. You know the exact <laughs> same things they're doing. Yeah, no, precisely. And so yeah, I mean I think I think Apple. Um, but it's but there are you know changes happening and there are maybe things that aren't, um, uh, there, there are struggles that they deal with that every company deals with. And I think part of that is just adjusting to being a, a bigger, uh, company and being in, in a global, um, environment, you know, like the having to, um, adjust the, the sales pro, uh, projections, um, last financial quarter because of uh, what they said was, was softer, um, you know, sales in, in China, um, was interesting because that hadn't happened before. And, and I mm-hmm. think that, that was definitely one of those um, issues. You also had the battery scandal. Yeah, uh, yeah. That was a big one. Um, you know, they, 
they did not anticipate that that many people were going to replace their batteries and not buy new iPhones. You're right. You're right. And, and, but I would say on that, in some cases, I don't, you know, I, I think you're, we're at a point and, and I don't think it's unique to just Apple, but I think Apple in some cases has a harder time with this because they, their, their products tend to, in my experience, work better longer is we've almost reached peak phone where, you know, the software isn't using, all the features that the hardware has available for it. And we're kind of waiting for that next big breakthrough, whether it's, it's AR or whether it's, it's something else. Um, and so most people, you know, if you have an iPhone 6S, that's going to be fine. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of people aren't going to notice a demonstrable difference between that and um, an iPhone 10S. And that's just, that's the reality of what happens when markets become saturated and when we reach peak computing cycles. The same thing happens, you know, or has happened with, with laptops and, you know, um, but there are, are certain applications and certain things people do that can push um, computing people needing to upgrade. Um, but, it, but it's hard, you know, I mean, it's like, yeah, you're right. They probably didn't expect as many people to just replace the battery because that was why they were upgrading a phone every year. It's also true. I mean, cell phones are hard because you used to have in the United States, carrier subsidies and you don't have that anymore and now people have you know payment plans and so that's kind of what apple's shifting to and and the other uh, manufacturers are doing that too where they're trying to get people to just pay monthly um and just always i pay monthly now and it's i do too that's one of the reasons i i i I, uh it makes sense (laughs) right i mean you're you're renting your phone and i used to be like oh i'm not going to do that And, and i resisted for years and years then i realized i was like i literally buy a new phone every single year yep and then it works in your favor. Yeah, it, it does. Like if you're that person, it really does make sense. If you're not, you know, it maybe doesn't, but, but if you're the type of person who's upgrading every year or every other year, yeah, it, it's, it's certainly um, not a bad idea. Um, especially if you're not somebody who wants to keep your phone after yep. you got rid of it. If you're not I used to resell them anyways, and I would take, I would take them, I would just go on Craigslist, resell my old iPhone take that money, put it towards the new model. I would do the exact same thing. It would be like a $100, $200 offset. But I realized even in doing that with financing and doing like the upgrade yep. programs, you're actually saving mm-hmm. that $300 in the end. So, and you're only basically paying for about half the phone if you exactly. upgrade early. So it's, the math is bizarre and it's the strangest thing because much like you, I did not want to give up owning my phone. Um, but at the same time, there was really no point to owning it anymore because they've become disposable. And that would be my biggest complaint against Apple right now is their products have become disposable. Uh, I miss the days of, you know, buying a Mac that I knew was going to last me five years. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, these I, days I, are over. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, um, I have, I've had some of the issues with the keyboard on the new MacBook pro. I haven't had to get it replaced, but I have had to, you know, pull out the compressed air. Um, I feel really convinced that my, uh, 2017 5k iMac will be around for five years, but I also spent a lot of money on it. And that's one of the few, you know, uh, things that has easily user accessible RAM upgrades, you know, it's, it's I'm on one right now and mine's been committing suicide. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. Mine, yeah. mine, mine, mine is good. Knock on wood. But, uh, but yeah, I also got the, got the Apple care, but you're right. I mean, but I'm, I'm going to be honest. Like, I don't think that's just Apple. I think that that's technology in general. And for those Intel of us who has a lot of blame in this actually, in my opinion, yeah, uh, their yeah. chipset quality has declined significantly, especially when it comes to mobile um, they just can't cool them appropriately. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's become a major problem. And then they made the they made the actual devices too thin because right. of 
Johnny Ives and his obsession with thinness. Um, and you know, they, it, you just can't cool the processors. So they have to throttle them. They have so. to throttle them down. Yeah, you're right. Um, and it's weird too, because in some cases, you know, like we're, we're nerds. So we feel that every little bit of throttling we get yeah. annoyed with. Uh, but there are plenty of people who, you know, Chromebooks sell really well for a reason and people use older MacBook Airs and older computers all the time. Um, and they use them for years longer than what we used to because a lot of our workloads are in the cloud and a lot of the software we use is in a web browser. And really, you know, the thing you care about is, is that Chrome is, is you know, uh, shitting the bed and, and that really doesn't have anything to do with what processor you have, you yeah. know, like, <laughs> like that's, that, that's, that's all about JavaScript and, and uh, optimization. That's not really about... I still use Safari. It handles JavaScript it way does. better than Chrome. I uh, agree. And I... Apple did a really good job and they just completely get written off when you talk to most developers. They're right. like, oh, I only use Chrome. And I'm like, why? I mean, uh, I'm with you. I, I, I use it a lot too. The problem is, is, is um, uh, Tom uh, Warren, no relation at The Verge, wrote a, a great thing a couple of years ago about how, you know, Chrome is the new IE or whatever. And, but it's kind of true in that people do build for, you know, Chrome for blank and so even though WebKit and Blink are really similar, there are still differences between, mm -hmm. you know, what you can, uh, what works on one and what works on another. Um, you know, I mean, we saw that same thing happen with, uh, with uh, Edge, the Edge browser. And, and uh, you know, that's one of the reasons why that's, that's moving to a Chromium base um, is that people just, it was, it was hard for, for devs and people to build things for it because, and to get support for it, you know, because people build websites for Chrome. That becomes the, the, the de facto thing. And I don't think that's great. I don't think anything should be like the, I, I'm, I'm about standards, but that is what it is. But you're right, yeah, Safari is definitely better um, when it comes to, uh, to memory performance and things like that for that reason. But, you know. Um, Apple was able to optimize their hardware to their software in that particular use case, whereas Google's just like whatever. <laughs> well, Google has different has different goals, right? And yeah. and that's um and also I think that you know your number of users. I mean, look, we even saw that with with Firefox. If we're going to be honest, like it got to a point where, um, I would say you know like the two thousand seven two thousand eight era Firefox before Chrome came out, uh, Firefox was felt bloated and slow. A lot of that was extensions, and that's the same thing that happens I think with Chrome. It's not so much Chrome itself it's that they have a lot of extensions that have other options and whatnot. And then the way that people build web browsers or not web browsers, websites now, you know, is way yeah. more intensive and completely changed completely. It, yeah. I mean, I ran a WordPress theme and plugin company for five years and it's even, I sold it three years ago. And even in the last three years, everything's changed. It's yeah. not even close to being the same. Yeah, no, WordPress is now basically JavaScript, which is really funny because it was always, you know, like the PHP thing. And, and now, you know, they have a, yes. yeah, I mean, uh, you know, they're trying to make it more reactive. It's still a PHP stack, but the, the front end is moving more JavaScript. So it's, uh, it's <laughs> you know, we're going through some crazy times in the tech space. I mean, things are just moving so fast, um, especially, you know, when you look at what's happening in blockchain and AI mm -hmm. and some of the other stuff we haven't even covered or talked about yet. And, you know, this interview, I, I feel like you and I could go on for hours. Um, but, uh, you know, we've, we're already about, you know, 50 something minutes here. So uh, I'm going to try and wrap this one up. So I've got to ask you, what is some time in your life that you've had to hack something? God. Oh, God. 
So do you mean um, like having to having to break into something? Like what do you mean hack? Like do you mean like having to hack something together? Do you mean like having to like literally you know break a password or something? Like what what do you mean? I by don't hack? know what comes to your mind. I mean, so this is the Hacker Noon podcast. So yes. you know we've got hackers who are biohackers who are life hackers. We've got hackers who you know are building robots that are you know security experts. You know uh, all that kind of stuff. So what comes to mind? What what does hacking mean to you? And you know, when's some time that you've used that in your life? God, um, so, I mean, I've definitely had to break into Wi-Fi networks before, <laughs> uh, whether it was because I just needed access to something or in some cases because, you know, um, uh, maybe it was like a, the people weren't around and, and you needed to, to, to um, get into to things for, for those purposes. Um, hmm. That's a pretty good one to me. I mean, yeah, yeah, you're, yeah, you're I talking don't... to a guy who live, like I did a live stream blog of a Steve Jobs keynote with a hacked V710 phone because they turned the Wi-Fi off. Oh, that's so good. Um, I love so, it. I love it. Yeah, I was the only guy who got a feed out because I was on like <sighs> original, I think it was, I don't even know if it was 3G yet. I think we were still on like two. Um, so I think it was the edge network actually. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Oh, that's um, so good. So I was oh. the only feed of that particular keynote. That was probably, I don't even remember what year that was. It was oh, like so probably good. something did, like that. Did they catch you? No, they did not catch me because they couldn't, it wasn't Wi-Fi. So they couldn't figure out how I had a signal. So That's I had hacked awesome. my V710 to be able to do that. So I can understand as a journalist in situations where you want to cover things, like needing to hack into Wi-Fi, like that's a yeah, hack. Yeah, in, in, in this case, it was actually, okay, I, I didn't want to share the whole uh, context because it was kind of sad, but my, my aunt and <laughs> uncle died in a car accident and um, they didn't have uh, uh, kids. And so we went to their house and we're trying to, you know, find the documents and things like that. And, um, you know, I had to, to, to break into the Wi-Fi router and whatnot so that we could access things. In other cases, I mean, we talk about Apple stuff. So I have, I have my own like iMac and I have, like I said, a work issued MacBook Pro and I have other laptops, but I bought this uh, uh, Huawei MateBook um, X Pro, which is a shameless, shameless knockoff of a MacBook, but it's great hardware. And I'm in the process, I have to get a, uh, a Wi-Fi dongle, ironically, because the onboard Wi-Fi doesn't work, but uh, I'm in the process of hackintoshing that actually. Okay. Uh, and so, uh, and that, that's always fun. I like to, I like to do You're things. You're hackintoshing like a laptop. Yeah. Yeah. Which is hard. I mean, you can That's get a different challenge. Yeah, It is because uh, the big thing is, is it has a, um, a discrete graphics card, but because of how the graphic stuff is uh, getting access to that isn't possible. So you have to, you know, use the integrated, but getting the, getting, I guess the, um, um, the performance so that uh, it's accelerated is the issue. Mm -hmm. So you know, um, which is oftentimes the same thing if you want to do it in virtualization, like with, with a QEMU or whatever, um, is, is the big issue there with, with Mac virtualization is usually the acceleration. So I'm, yeah. I'm playing with that. But I mean, that's just, that's just fun stuff to do, you know. Yeah. Awesome. Well, do you have any final thoughts before we wrap up? I know we've covered a lot of ground. Yeah, we've covered a lot of stuff. No, I mean, I think that like, I, uh, you know, Hacker Noon is, is just cool because it shows people how to do cool things. I mean, I just always say, you know, continue building, people continue building cool stuff. That's just my favorite thing to see, period. Whether it's, you know, and, and whether it's in, in, in news or, or it's, you know, uh, uh, around, you know, tech or, or whatever, like that's, yeah. that's what makes all of this so fun. Um, that's what drew me to the web originally is just the fact that you can build anything and tell stories. 
and that's that's why I got involved because I it's I've seen this evolution of these media companies time and time again, much like you have as well. And Hacker Noon is like kind of on the cusp of becoming that next big tech company uh, or that next big uh, you know tech media kind of mm-hmm. platform. You know, it's it's cool because it's contributor based. You know, we're crowdsourcing most of the content. Um, we just had a successful fundraise, um, and uh, you know we're we're moving off medium, uh, so that's really you know. Oh, that's awesome! I'd love to talk to you more about sometime about that and that process because that's really interesting. Yeah, I might have to stop recording if yeah, we totally, have that conversation. Totally. But um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, we're we're in the process of doing that right now. So uh, you know, I don't know. We'll see. It might be we might be on the new platform by the time this episode airs. So I'm I'm not sure yet. Um, we might get you out right before the transition, but we'll see. Um, but yeah, there's a, there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff happening in this space. And, you know, Hacker Noon has been a, an interesting one because it's been able to survive while all these other media publications have been failing. And it's actually been created within the last two to three years while all this chaos has been happening that we just talked about and it's been successful. So uh, it's very interesting to see where this can go um, because- I don't know, you know, this is, this is how these tech companies work. You, you kind of go through these cycles. You do, you do. You, you see these trends emerging and, you know, I, I hopped on the Hacker Noon wave because I was like, okay, this one's going to get bigger. That's awesome. That's great. So, and I just want to thank you for coming on the show. This has been amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've covered a lot of ground and I, we hit some hard topics and, uh, you know, I think the audience is, you know, definitely going to be very interested in your insight you know, considering you've covered this industry for so long from so many different perspectives, uh, you know, it's, it's always great to get someone's opinion, that, especially as a journalist and now someone who's on the other side, you know, who's working, you know, with product and working with product teams and communicating with users and that kind of thing. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's powerful stuff. So thank you again for coming on the show. Uh, where can people find you? Yeah, so you can find me on Twitter at film underscore girl. Um, I do a podcast called Rocket with Brianna Wu and Simone de Rochefort on Relay FM. So it's relay.fm slash rocket. And uh, we cover kind of tech news, but also pop culture stuff. And um, you can do th- so you can see the videos that I do at work at youtube.com slash Microsoft developer. So check that awesome. out. Awesome. Well, again, thank you for coming on the show. <laughs> Thank you. This concludes another episode of the Hacker Noon Podcast. I'm your host, Trent Lipinski. Please don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes and YouTube and follow us on social media. You can also find us at hackernoon.com and podcast.hackernoon.com for more episodes. Thank you for listening.